0: Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's Bible class at St. Paul DePere. A special welcome to those of you who are listening on KFUO radio. As we prepare our hearts and minds to study God's word today, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, you have said that it is your will that all people should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so on this day, as we gather for Bible study, we pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts and minds and reveal to us by your Holy Spirit the truth, the truth of your word. May we read it, mark it, learn it and inwardly digest it. Bless our time together as we come in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The lessons that we'll be studying today are for proper 21. Actually, the lessons that will be used in our congregations on September 29th. And as last week, we begin with a lesson from the book of the prophet Amos. For the sake of review, just a little bit about Amos. You remember that uh, he is one of the minor prophets. Minor only in the, uh, the cause of his, his uh, writing being very short. It's only nine chapters. He ministered around 750 BC. He identifies himself as a shepherd and dresser of sycamore fig trees. And so he was a layman, a businessman, and what we would call a, a farmer, an agribusinessman. And if you know anything about agribusinessmen, they're pretty sharp guys. He was from the town of Tekoa, which is in the southern kingdom, but he did his primary ministry in the northern kingdom. He was kind of an intruder, one who came from the outside, and people, I'm sure, were thinking, go back where you came from. We don't need to hear this. The name means uh, the burden bearer. And as I said last week, he was more like a pain in the neck because he had kind of a sneaky preaching style. In the opening chapters of the book, you may remember, he begins several sections saying, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not relent, God says. Damascus, of course, was the capital of Syria. The people in Israel loved hearing words of condemnation about the Syrians and then he went to three transgressions of Gaza and for four and once again the people were cheering and he went through Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and he got down to Judah which was their the southern kingdom their, their cousins and they were surely cheering yeah tell those people down in Judah they need to hear this sermon and once he had drawn them all in this pattern of, of uh, addressing the sins of others, he turns the table on them and says, and now let's talk about your sins. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not relent, the Lord says. And so Amos kept calling the people of God to repent. The primary focus of his repentance is is on the the subject of stewardship. How you manage your life and all of the resources of your life for God's purposes. Getting rid of all the selfishness and the arrogance and the the extravagance and sharing with the poor and the needy. And so we begin chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Woe to those who are at ease in Mount Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men, the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Chapter 6 begins with the word woe. And you'll see it again in verse 4. Woe is, is a word of warning about what is to come a word that was often used at funerals to uh, alert the people what's happening here to your loved one who has died can happen to you too woe and what he's warning about is the day of disaster In chapter 5 he talks about the day of Yahweh that is coming it's as if he's saying to them your days are numbered You've been targeted by God. The wrath is going to befall you. And as we know, if if he was writing in around 750, it was just a few years later in 722 BC, that the Northern Kingdom actually fell. And in 586, the Southern Kingdom fell. Woe to you, the days are coming but notice who he directs these words of woe to woe to those who are at ease woe to those who feel secure woe to those who are the notable men those who like to think of themselves as the first of the nation it was a time of peace a time of complacency A time when the people were feeling very comfortable about who they they were and and all that they had. But Amos is warning them about the way in which they're dealing with the poor. Taking advantage of those who come to these these first these notable men the the aristocracy of the kingdom. They come seeking justice. They keep come seeking help in their time of poverty. They come seeking leadership and role models and those who are the first, and we'll come back to the, this word again, those who are the first are the ones who are being called to account. So, in verse 2 and 3, he says, are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory greater than your territory, O oh, you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Consider what happened to other great city-states who thought that they couldn't be defeated, that they had everything under their control. We don't know much about the city-state of Kalna, but it was probably in the land of Syria. Hamath was a Syrian city that was defeated by Jeroboam II, who at this time was the king of the northern kingdom. Look at what Jeroboam did to Hamath. You think it can't happen to you too? And for those who were in the southern kingdom listening in, he said, what about Gath? Well, Uzziah had defeated this Philistine stronghold. You think it can't happen to you? Are you any better than they? Stop this complacency. Stop tolerating the evil that is going on in your midst. Stop causing all of the violence against your own people. If Amos was alive today, he'd be saying, Listen, St. Louis, are you any better than Kalna? Are you any better than Hamath? Are you any better than Gath? It's time to stop the violence. It's time to stop taking advantage of people. It's time to stop the injustice. And so once again, Amos is drawing us into this account saying, don't be so complacent. Don't be so comfortable. Don't be at ease while people all around you are hurting and being taken advantage of. And then comes the second woe in verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. There are seven verbs in the first part of this. It talks about those who lie and stretch themselves and eat and sing idle songs and invent musical instruments. Those who drink wine in bowls, not just in chalices, but in bowls. And really the word here is sacred bowls what he's talking about here are the kinds of things that go on in idol worship and apparently the leadership instead of being true to the Lord were in fact being involved in all of this idolatry and behaving just like the people around them and so he he hammers them with these seven verbs all describing temple worship they were living a life of luxury eating the choicest food they partied hard they were the pampered class and their arrogance and their extravagance and their complacency had become an abomination to the Lord but then notice there's an eighth verb they were not grieved over the ruin of joseph remember joseph in the old testament he was the abused brother the one who was hated and beaten by his brothers and um, put down in the well and then sold into slavery You leading people of Israel are not grieved over the ruin of your brothers. You're causing the abuse. You're letting it go on. It's time for it to stop. He's really concerned about their spiritual welfare. It wasn't just the fact that the poor people were being abused, but what was happening to their faith And for that matter, what was happening to the faith of the rich and the famous? Their faith also was dwindling and being beaten down because of what was going on in their hearts, the way they were managing their lives. And so verse 7 says, you wanted to be the first, you're going to be the first. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. They wanted to be the leaders, they would lead their people into exile. They wanted to be the first, God would make them be the first to to enter into the punishment. As we read this prophecy of Amos, we can't help but think about our own culture. We Christians are God's people today and we enjoy the prosperity of our times and we look at our wealth not in a prideful kind of way but our wealth is truly a gift from God And when we recognize as we said last week that God is the owner of all things and we are merely managers of what he has entrusted to us it puts a a different focus on our lives it's not about us it's not about our wealth, our barns, our harvest, the things that we can gather and collect and save for ourselves, but it's how we manage those things that belong to God, including how we manage those things for the sake of the poor and the needy that is important in the eyes of the Lord our God. So the, the question arises, what, what do you invest Where do you get involved? What are you doing about the plight of the poor and the needy? Are you grieved about the spiritual condition of the world that you and I live in? Amos really lays it on our hearts. You know how the Lord cares for the poor. And how over and over again in Old Testament and New, he talks about taking care of the poor and needy and providing for those who are in need. What are you doing for their sake? That leads us right into the the gospel for, today, for next Sunday, and that's Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Because they're connected, I'm going to do what I did last week and go from Old Testament to gospel and then go back to the epistle. Luke 16, verse 19 through 31, if you recall the context, in chapter 15, Jesus starts talking about a lady who lost one of her ten coins and how this was the family inheritance and how she lit the lamp and swept the house until she found her lost coin it was so valuable to her the next story is about a young boy and a a father who gave his son his half of the inheritance and the boy went out and lived a, a shameful life until all the money was gone then realized he was no longer worthy to be called a son, he just wanted to be called a servant, even a slave. And how the father welcomed him back home again. Then we, we heard the, the story last week. Um, recall the, the parable that, that Jesus told about a, a rich man. And now we come to one more parable. But there are those who question, is this, is this really a parable? Or is Jesus telling us something about a current event? Something that actually happened? If you look at all of Jesus' other parables, he, he's, he's always talking about a certain man, this person, that person, but he never gives them names. This is the only parable in which Jesus gives a man a name his name was Lazarus is Jesus saying this really happened as one who would know the the ins and outs of what's going on in life everlasting in heaven and in hell Jesus could certainly be saying this is real this really happened and so let's let's think about the the parable, or the account in in this way. Could Jesus be telling us something that actually happened? Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Let's look first at, at the poor man. His name is Lazarus. Apparently it was a somewhat common name. We know the story of another Lazarus in scripture. The name means God has helped. And it certainly didn't look like God was helping this man as he sat outside the gates of of this rich man. He was covered with sores. Can you imagine how disgusting he must have looked and how he must have smelled? And how weak he was that he couldn't even fight the dogs off, the wild dogs who came and licked his wounds? Who would want to see something like that every day as he went out of his house to go about his business? Or, or who would want to see that on on the way out the door to go to the temple for, for worship. And then there was a rich man. He's unnamed. Sometimes they call him divies, but divies is just a Latin word for rich. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't have a name because his name wasn't known in heaven. His name wasn't written in the Lamb's book of life. He was an unbeliever, apparently. What was his problem, according to Jesus? Was he mean? Did he go out the door every at the gate every day and kick this poor man lying there? Did he deliberately refuse him food? It was customary in the, in the rich homes, they didn't have napkins as such. They would always have large amounts of bread. And when the meal was over, the wealthy people would wipe their hands on the bread like we use a napkin. And then they would always be thrown out to the poor people on the street. It was just common practice. And that's all that Lazarus really wanted, just the scraps, the leftovers. Doesn't say that, that this rich man refused to give that to Lazarus. So what was his problem? Was it just that he was thoughtless? Or was it that he, he wasn't rich toward God? Or that he didn't make friends? with the wealth that had been entrusted to him, as we heard in the last parable? What was his problem? Well, we read on in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame but Abraham said child remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither shall they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Notice the great reversal the rich become poor, and the poor become rich. Mary in her Magnificat, remember as she sang that song of praise when she learned that she was going to bear the the Christ child, sang this song, The Magnificent. We sometimes use it in worship. But there's a line in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, she sings, You have filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich empty away Jesus is saying the same kind of thing there's going to be a day of reckoning there's going to be a day when God reverses the fates of the rich and the poor because God cares so much about poor people then you come to uh, Luke chapter 6 and Jesus is speaking the Beatitudes the Sermon on the Plain and Jesus said blessed are those who hunger now for you will be satisfied and woe to those who are well fed now for you will go hungry a reversal is coming the day of reckoning is going to happen God is going to take care of the poor people not because they're poor but because God loves the poor and the needy a question arises what happens when we die for a moment let's take this story as an actual account of something that Jesus knew directly about and so Jesus says when Lazarus died He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He was taken to that place of honor in the front row, right next to Abraham, the father of all the faithful, in this banquet feast that Jesus describes, the banquet which is to come. What happens to a believer when he dies? The angels come and they take us immediately to that heavenly banquet and Jesus is saying, that's a fact you can count on that happening have you ever been to the the bedside of a person who is dying I'm not a guy who sees spirits all around and frankly I have never seen an angel but I have visited several people as they were preparing to die And I remember particularly one woman who said, look, pastor, the angels are here in the room with her as she was preparing to die. I didn't see angels, but she did. Is this factual? Jesus said so. I believe that when we die, the angels come and escort us to heaven what about the rich man verse 23 is a controversial verse a lot of of scholars want to leave this verse out because they don't want to hear about hell but listen to what Jesus said the rich man died and was buried and in Hades in torment in the pains of hell is he experiencing these horrible flames you know what the most intense kind of pain is? the pain of burning if you reach over and touch a hot pot your body doesn't say oh that's hot I ought to remove my hand The the reaction is instantaneous. The the pain is intense. The body reacts immediately as it jerks away. As Jesus describes hell, the flames are real. The pain is monumental. Don't believe for a moment that there is no hell. There is, and the one who knows there is, has told us so in verse 23. Well, at this point, in the midst of all of this agony, the rich man lifts his eyes and he sees Abraham. And for the first time in his life, he sees Lazarus. Up until this time, he seemed to pass through the gates every day and he didn't notice. But he still sees uh, Lazarus as his lackey. Father Abraham. Why don't, why don't you send that flunky to dip his finger in some cool water and bring it down here in order to cool my tongue because I'm the one in anguish now. What must he thought of himself and what must he thought of, of Lazarus if you could, you could be in that kind of pain and still think of the one at Abraham's side as, as your flunky? Abraham responds there's this great chasm that's been fixed between heaven and hell so that no one can pass from the one to the other and maybe we're getting at the worst part of hell of all here's a man who is suffering in all this pain and he looks up and he sees what could have been his but there are no second chances this great chasm has been fixed so that no one could pass from one to the other his fate had already been decided there was no hope for him and maybe that's the worst part of hell experiencing all of this pain and knowing that there's no end there's no hope It's just gonna go on and on and on finally the rich man starts thinking about somebody other than himself and he remembers he got five brothers five brothers in his father's house who were apparently much like him because now he's he's finally concerned about their spiritual welfare lest they also come into this kind of pain and torment and so now he's once again a send Lazarus back from the dead he's he's still the flunky you send him back to warn my brothers to my father's house maybe somebody rising from the dead will shock them deeply enough that they'll finally get it that they'll believe too and and avoid this torment what's Abraham's response no, they have Moses and the prophets. Was Abraham just being hard-hearted? Doesn't, want, doesn't God want all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Why wouldn't Abraham send someone back from the dead to convince these five brothers that they needed to repent? Because God has spoken. God has spoken in his word. They have the word of God, the word of law, and the word of gospel, and they're not listening to it. The rich man thought if if they were shocked into believing, maybe they would, but the word isn't enough. And Abraham says, no, the word really is enough. As we heard in in the sermon this morning, that word is able to make you wise and to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's all that's needed. It's interesting, isn't it, that later on, Jesus would indeed raise Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus, a different Lazarus. Lazarus, a friend of his, the brother of Mary and Martha, who had died four days earlier. All Jesus needed to do was to step to the grave and speak a word of command, and Lazarus came forth from the grave. Did that convince the Pharisees? Did that convince the the brothers of this rich man that they needed to repent? No, if you read the Gospel of John, it says, when the Pharisees saw what happened, they weren't converted, they didn't repent. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Jesus had to die. Even someone rising from the dead couldn't possibly convince them. What's the point of the the parable? Or is it a real life story? Certainly, it has something to do with our stewardship and and how we treat the poor and giving of alms. But I think there's a more important lesson here, and that's the sufficiency of God's Word. This rich man was poor because he had neglected God's Word, he didn't know the way of salvation. He didn't have the gift of faith. He had rejected all of that and and it was revealed in the way that he had lived his life. If he had listened to the word, the spirit could have made him wise to salvation. But he rejected the word and he suffered the consequences eternally. Jesus tells a story and there's a heavy dose of law here but there's also the powerful gospel promise for those of us who know Jesus and that joy of the angels coming to escort us to heaven to that banquet that knows no end the joy that will be ours eternally. Any thoughts about these two passages and how they fit together? I'm not going to tell you anymore because I'm preaching on the gospel next Sunday. Tune in next week for the rest of the details. The epistle today for next Sunday is, is actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I, I really wanted to spend a, a good deal of time here. Just to, again, we, we read a passage from Timothy last week. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Remember, St. Paul had had sent Timothy to Ephesus. And really, he had the job of building the church. He was a a pastor, but more than a pastor, he was kind of a, a bishop. He needed to train other people to be pastors. He needed to train lay people. He needed to lay down the foundation of what it means to be the church in Ephesus. And so in this particular section, he's talking about leaders in the church. He's talking first about pastors, and then he's talking about deacons. Let's go as as far as we can. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy Apparently, St. Paul is quoting a a well-known adage, something that was spoken throughout Christian circles all the time. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This word overseer is is problematic for some. some. Some translate it as bishop anybody desires to be a bishop, but really an overseer in a congregation is, is the word we use for pastor. If anybody desires to be a pastor, nobody, nobody desires to be a pastor. In my own case, I knew when I was in second or third grade I came into contact with pastors and seminary students and I had this sense that, that I wanted to be a pastor and as the years went on it, it became clearer and clearer until I was in seventh grade and a seminary student te- was teaching confirmation class and he ad- asked the test question what do you want to be when you grow up and how can you serve God doing that it was a question of vocation and when i put down i wanted to be a pastor he must have grabbed that test and made a beeline to the pastor's office because the next week i was in the pastor's office and they were asking you know what you need to do we'll help guide you into this position as i look back on it now it was it was i wanted to be a professional baseball player but god had another mind he uh, another idea in mind He'd, gave me terrible vision. Um, But throughout all of this, there have been experiences in which I know, looking back, that it wasn't just me. It was God who was calling me to this office. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he's, he's looking at a noble task. If anybody is considering being a pastor, it's a noble task. But if you look at what's going on in the world today, you know, pastors used to be put up on a pedestal. It used to be, in the eyes of everybody, a noble task. Remember the old movies of, uh, I think, the Bells of St. Mary. Bing Crosby was a priest. And he was the most trusted man in the community. Everybody went to him seeking counsel and advice. He was father to everyone. Something's happened over the years. We've knocked the preachers, the pastors, the priests off the pedestal. Sometimes it's because of pastors and priests misbehaving and being unworthy of the, of the respect. But something has also gone on in, in our culture that has knocked the pastors off the pedestal. Remember when you were a little kid how you addressed your pastor? It was, in our case, it was the Reverend Borth, the Reverend Schrader, or in time it became Pastor Borth and Pastor Schrader. And then, then I got to my first congregation, and people wanted to call me Pastor Paul, and oh, I was okay with that. Let's, let's be a little less formal and, and uh, get into the lives of the people. And by the time I ended my ministry, there were just people saying, hey, Paul, what's going on? <laughs> Even what we call our pastors is a, should be a sign of respect for this office, which God considers to be a noble task. If he's the one who's doing the calling, if he's the one who established this office, then, then truly it is a noble task. Again, in the eyes of the world, it, it, if it used to be that pastors were trusted, they were always the, the highest of the most trusted people in our, our culture. If you look at it today, I think we're in seventh place now. I think attorneys and congressmen and all, all kinds of people are ahead of the pastor. But God says it's a noble task this passage lays out for us the qualifications for those whom God calls to this ministry the expectations you know a, a year or so maybe a, yeah, about a year ago we were going through a survey of the congregation and, and in a sense what was being asked is what are your expectations of our next senior pastor and we all had the opportunity to participate, to write down what, what we thought this new pastor should be like, what, what he should do. You know, there's the old joke about we, we want a pastor who is 27 years old and has 30 years of experience in ministry, someone who's good with the youth but always out visiting the sick and the shut-ins, someone who drives a fancy car, lives in a nice house, but we're not going to pay him very much to do that. He, he can live... on on the basics someone who's in his office all the time when we need him but always out there making evangelism calls someone who's a great preacher but doesn't spend too much time in the pulpit we got these weird expectations and the expectations are exaggerated in our culture in when I started in ministry forty three years ago if a man could preach a good sermon if he was out in the community and visiting his sick and shut-ins, that was about all the expectations that a congregation really had of a pastor. But now a pastor has to compete with Joel Osteen and, and build this dynamic congregation in the midst of a basketball stadium. And he's got to have this personality and well-dressed and slick. And Who can live up to those kinds of expectations? And so the issue is not what do we expect of a pastor, but what does God expect of a pastor? There are two ways to read the rest of these verses. I always joke there's, there's the way in which lay people read these words and there's the way in which pastors read these words. And when I get to the end, I'll explain the difference. So, what are the qualifications? An overseer must be above reproach. The image of this word reproach is having handles. A pastor cannot have handles by which the devil can get a hold of him and tear apart his ministry. He can't have handles where the world can get a hold of him and tear apart his ministry. He cannot have handles in which his own sinful flesh can get a hold of him and tear apart the ministry. So all the rest of the words that follow are kind of a description of what it means not to have handles. He must be above reproach. A consistent, mature Christian is the point. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man, a sexually faithful man, In the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, the Council of Presidents has established a zero-tolerance policy. If there is any kind of sexual contact between a pastor and anyone other than his spouse, he is automatically removed from the roster of synod. There's no questions, there's no second chances, he's done. That's pretty important in the culture that we live in. If people have questions about the sexual faithfulness of their pastor or their priest, we're not going to tolerate it in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded. That's calm. Collected. He doesn't make change just for the sake of change one of the things I've I've found with young pastors they they go to the seminary and they hear how things ought to be in the church here is where the baptismal font needs to be, here is where the flags don't belong, here is how things in our church are going to operate and they walk into a church and now they need to change everything because this is what they were taught at the seminary And they get themselves into all kinds of difficulty. It's not change for the sake of change. We instruct young pastors to listen carefully for at least an entire year to learn the congregation, to learn why they do the things they do before they carefully and slowly instruct their people as to the way things ought to be. And so so that's what it's being talked about here, sober-minded, self-controlled, sensible, someone who is is thoughtful, someone who has control of his emotions, someone who has control of his life. It's one of the biggest problems in our culture today. People lack self-control. But the pastor needs to be the one who is in control. He must be respectable or dignified. He needs to conduct himself as a gentleman. He needs to be worthy of the respect of this noble office. Hospitable, he's one who shows love to the strangers, who's always kind to guests. Have you noticed how our pastors operate? On Sunday morning, almost always, they're standing in the back of the church. They're there to welcome everyone, but especially the people they don't know. And they make it a point to go to those people. I've watched them. And they introduce themselves and find out who these people are. And if there are questions, they answer the questions. That's showing hospitality to the strangers. It's a critical part of the ministry. A pastor must be able to teach. In order to be a teacher, he has to be a student. In order to teach somebody something else, he has to first learn it himself. So a pastor is a student and one who has the ability to share what he's learned with others. Not a drunkard is the next one. This is huge in the ministry. Pastors Pastors bear the, the secrets of the congregation. They know the pain of every member. They're in the hospital, they're at the nursing home, they're at the funeral home, they hear confession, they they know things that they can't share with anybody, not even their wives. They're on call 24-7. They're under a great deal of stress. How does a pastor deal with that? We encourage pastors to find a father confessor, someone that they can go to and bear their, their, their concerns. But oftentimes, pastors self-medicate. Drinking is, is an easy way to, to uh, lose the pain. It's very anonymous. You go to the liquor store, you pick up a bottle, you take it home, you go into the basement. Nobody sees, nobody knows. You self-medicate yourself to deal with all of the stress and all the issues. And one drink leads to two. and Two drinks leads to three. And then to a bottle a night. And a man is in all kinds of trouble. Again, this, this is a, a serious problem for a congregation to deal with. But congregations are able to deal with it. In, in my former role as a district president, I suspect that every year there was at least one pastor who needed to go to treatment. And we were able to save every one of those ministries, except one, and that guy had other issues besides. But if you go to a congregation and you explain to them that here's what's going on and that your pastor is sick and he needs some help and he has this addiction, congregations would step up. And there was always somebody in the congregation who said, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. God has helped me, we as a congregation need to stand with our pastor and we were able to save those ministries because the the people of God saw an opportunity to assist their pastors. It's a critical issue in many congregations not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. A, A pastor can't have a short temper they've always said that a short temper leads to a short ministry if a pastor is one who's going to blow up in order to demand his way all the time he's gonna find himself in trouble all the time so he can't be violent he needs to be gentle it's not arguing for the sake of arguing not a lover of money because as we heard last week you can't serve God and money You love the one and hate the other. Not a lover of money. Again, nobody goes into the ministry in order to get rich. But again, we as lay people hear these words and and we have to be taken into account and say, we need to provide for our pastors. Every pastor has the same kinds of needs that you have. They need a home, they need uh, clothing, they need to take care of their families, they need food, they need all the things that everybody else needs, and we as a congregation have a duty to provide that for them because a laborer is worthy of his hire. Scripture says. And so, again, the word comes to us. Are we providing adequately for our, our church workers? He must manage his own household well. Because if he doesn't know how to manage his household, how can he take care of the church of God? And every pastor cringes with those words. And every preacher's kid cringes as well. Are any of you preacher's kids? (laughs) I know some back here. It is tough living in a parsonage. Absolutely, everybody knows everything about your life. When when I was first ordained, I lived in in the corner, the, the church and the education building and the parsonage. And people going to church, passing by, going to every meeting, the people across the street knew exactly what time I went to bed at night, what time I got up in the morning, who came to visit the house, the, the voters got to vote on what my salary was. Every time my wife got a new dress, there were comments made about the clothes she was wearing at a church. They know everything. And, and so they, they live in this fishbowl. Um, we as a congregation need to take these words to heart as well. And again, remember that we need to allow our pastors to live their lives, to make the same mistakes to manage their households as God guides and directs them. He must not be a recent convert. He needs to be spiritually mature because if he's he's not mature, he could be led into conceit and pride. Seminary takes care of this, you need at least four years of uh, seminary training before you can become a pastor and it takes at least two years of membership in one of our churches before you can go to the seminary so we're not likely to get someone who is a recent convert finally he must be well thought of by outsiders why would a congregation, why would a pastor, why would God care if he's thought well of by people in the community He's, he's not just called to be pastor of that congregation. He represents the church and he represents God in the midst of that community. And so he needs to be well thought of by the outsiders so that when they, they look at him and see his ministry, they look at him and see the congregation, they look at him and, and see the Lord he represents he must be well thought of by outsiders Well, remember I said there were two ways of reading these same verses there's the way lay people read them and we sit back in the pews and we say here's God's expectations and our pastor doesn't measure up on points one five and seven he's not much of a preacher You know how pastors read those same words? Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican and how the publican stood in the back and beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Pastors feel beaten up by these words because deep down inside, we know we're not worthy of this noble task. There isn't a pastor I know who feels worthy, who lives up to God's expectations of him. And the the question for the congregation then becomes, what do you do if you get an imperfect pastor? What do you do if if a man isn't an apt teacher? What do you do with a man who who, uh, has a short temper and, and explodes at meetings? You kick him out, you defrock him, you get rid of him. I tell congregations, you need to do the same thing for your pastor that he does for you every Sunday. He takes you before the altar, before the throne of God. And as he confesses that he's a poor, miserable sinner, He needs to hear the same words that you and I hear all the time. That in the stead and by the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's forgiven too. Probably a good point to stop on. The rest of the passage goes on to talk about deacons, the lay people, and the the, the expectations that God has for them pretty high as well. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Once again, gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would take what we heard with our ears and saw with our eyes today, that we might take that with us into the world this week. That we might recognize the poor and the needy and reach out in maybe small ways to ease their pain and, and discomfort. We pray that that we would be in your word that that you would make us wise to salvation. We pray for our pastors today, and we entrust them to your care and keeping as they go about their busy work of preaching the word and ministering the sacraments, bringing your blessings to all of us. Now go with us on our homeward journeys, keep us safe from harm and danger. Tomorrow, let us go about our lives living as wise managers, stewards of all of the blessings that you've entrusted to us. And We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.